welcome to the Stetzer Church Leaders Podcast, conversations with today's top ministry leaders to help you lead better every day. And now, podcasting from the Wheaton College Billy Graham Center in Chicagoland, here are your hosts, Ed Stetzer and Daniel Yang. Welcome to the Stetzer Church Leaders Podcast, where we're helping Christian leaders navigate and lead through the cultural issues of our day. My name is Daniel Yang, the director of the Church Multiplication Institute, and today we're talking with Robbie Gallaty. Rowdy has served as senior pastor of Long Hollow Church in Hendersonville, Tennessee since 2015 and is the founder of Replicate Ministries. He's also the author of several books, including Rediscovering Discipleship, Making Jesus' Final Words Our First Work, and Growing Up, How to Be a Disciple Who Makes Disciples, which has recently been revised and updated. But first, let's hear from our host, Ed Stetzer, and editor-in-chief of Outreach Magazine and the executive director of the Wheaton College Billy Graham Center. Okay, so I know too much about Robbie Gallaty and about... The church. The church is called Long Hollow. Long Hollow. So you got to be from Tennessee, know what a Long Hollow is. Um, and uh, and so and so I used to be. I don't know if we use the term or not, but I I was like teaching pastor there for a year, and uh, and and loved the church. Love Robbie. Loved his predecessor. We'll talk about that in just a bit as well. But I also know that when Robbie came, uh, they did this. Uh, uh, these these ads started showing up on like when I would I don't know what I was doing, but I'd see something and be like. The true story mm-hmm. of this pastor. What's mm-hmm. the this criminal? This Robbie Gannett. It showed like a picture of him in a mug shot. And so we gotta start with the fact that you are actually a criminal. So let's talk a little bit about that. <laughs> no, tell, Robbie, thanks for doing te- it. Tell us a little tell us a little of your story. Oh my gosh. Yeah, not technically a criminal, but the, the billboard. You got a mugshot, bro. I don't got a mugshot. Well, it yeah. Well, it was uh the church PR that they tried to come up with a way to promote Easter Sunday where I would share my testimony of being a former bouncer, bartender, drug addict, uh and, and drug pusher, drug dealer. And they did this ad that said, He is not who you think he is. He is not who you think he is.com. And uh, we had an amazing Easter Sunday. But anyway, uh, I just shared my story. I wasn't always raised in church, actually raised uh, Roman Catholic church growing up. And I was uh, kind of a, a, I wasn't casual Catholics. We went to church every Sunday. If we missed church on Sunday, went to confession on Saturday. But even back then, I didn't know the Lord personally. I didn't have a relationship personally with him. Got a scholarship to a Southern Baptist college named William Carey, which uh, I'm sure, uh, Daniel, you've never heard of before, I bet. Uh, and neither had <laughs> I at the time. I'd never heard of William Carey. I didn't even know who William Carey was, much less wow, the college. Okay. Yeah. And I uh, got a scholarship to play basketball. And uh, if you know what that means, I was the target of every evangelism class on campus as a Roman Catholic <laughs> on a Southern Baptist <laughs> campus. Uh, but I heard the gospel, remembered the gospel seven years later, would uh, surrender my life to Christ after a, a bad car accident in 1999, which left me in pain with a back injury, neck injury, went to the doctor and uh, sent me home at 22 with uh, Oxycontin, Valium, Soma, and Percocet. And uh, you guys know the story. Within two, three months, I'm addicted to drugs. I can't work. I I don't, I can't uh, train anymore. I just want to get high. I have this insatiable desire to get high, start selling drugs in the city of New Orleans, importing drugs from Mexico to Miami, and uh, robbed my own parents for $15,000, lived without gas, electricity, and water for three months, went to rehab twice. I tell people the reason is the first time I did it without Christ, and Mm -hmm. I always like to pause and say sobriety without Christ is a dead-end street. Uh, I Mm. tried it before. You need something, someone outside of yourself to set you free from the sin that captures you. And 
controls you. And so uh, I came out of the second rehab treatment, Ed, and I was basically like, you know what? I might as well give Jesus a try. I tried everything else. I'd lost eight friends to death of drugs and alcohol. Six were in jail. And I'm, I'm thinking, you know what? I might as well give Jesus a try. What do I have to lose? And I put, I tell people the little bit of faith I had and as much of Jesus as I knew. And it was enough to be radically saved. And I had this 24 hour Paul, like first Corinthians or second Corinthians 12, 24 hour encounter with the Lord. That was so profound that I knew that day I was called to be in ministry. It doesn't always happen that way. And so, um, kind of wandered for the next eight months. And I was at church one Sunday and a guy who looked at the time about 15, blonde haired, sharp looking uh, younger guy by the name of David Platt. No. Yeah. And David Platt's at church one Sunday. He's like, Hey man, would you be interested in meeting once a week to study the Bible, memorize scripture and pray? I said, David, I'd love to. He said, pray about it. I said, I already have. When do we meet? Now, David doesn't agree to this, but I'm sure this was the case. I'm convinced David took me on as a project. I mean, guys, (laughs) you got to understand I was going to Edgewater Baptist church and a black Cadillac CTS that I had bought with money from the past, uh, 20 inch chrome katana rims, $9,000 stereo system, Ed. I wasn't playing Master P and Tupac and Eminem. Now I was playing DJ Madge and cross movement, and, you know, so, but I'm cruising up in the parking lot, black on black outfits that I used to wear to the club. And I'm convinced David said, someone who's going to take, I'll take the guy, you know? And so for two years, David Platt and I met twice a week to memorize scripture, study the Bible. And people say, what was it like to, to learn from David Platt? Did you talk about the finer tenets of, of systematic theology and eschatology? Yes, we did. But I don't remember really any of that. I remember how he lived his life. He unapologetically preached the word. He passionately shared his faith. He took me on my first mission trip. He baptized me. He was stood in my wedding. And so I tell people I'm the product of discipleship. You know, that's why I'm so passionate about discipleship, because I was invested in by men who my life was changed because of it. Fascinating. I didn't know that. I, I didn't know the uh, connection to David. That's interesting. I know some of your story. I know the arrests, you know, that kind of exciting stuff. But here's the thing. You have I never got arrested. arrested for the record. I, you I, I you got get... a picture of like, no, what is that, that was. That was the DMV, actually. That was me getting my driver's license. Really? You the look totally license. like you've just been dragged out of, no, a, no, no, out of, out of a drug den. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, was gonna, I would still love you. I mean, George W. Bush was arrested three times, so keep that in mind. So whenever you feel like, is it bad that I've been arrested? Remember that a former president has been arrested three times. But that's another story for another day. Don't send letters about that. Okay, so so discipleship is kind of a key thing. This is a theme for you. You wrote a book, Rediscovering Discipleship, Making Jesus' Final Words Our First Work, Growing Up, How to Be a Disciple Who Makes Disciples. And I love this, this part of your story that I didn't know related to David Platt. Um, so... So, so discipleship, you come, I mean, I know you're down, you're, you're in Chattanooga and you come up to this church, uh, that again, I have connections with, I used to live right down the road from, from where the church is taught there for a year. Um, the former pastor is uh, with the Lord. Now he, uh, we were, we were close. Uh, David Landreth was his name and that church was kind of not kind of, I mean, the language that, that David used was it was redneck North point. So um, you know, seeker church, uh, and, and, and might I say, saw a lot of people come to faith in Jesus. Um, he wasn't an expository preacher, primarily, um, topical preacher did, uh, you know, long hollow at the movies and stuff like that. And you come along and it's a, it's a pretty substantive shift. And early on, a lot of people had a question whether or not 
you were going to take Redneck North Point, and you know what was it going to? Is this going to be you know John Piper, you know verse by verse? I'm just using an example. Everybody might know, yeah. um, and it didn't collapse. It it uh, it it ex- well. Let's talk about that. How? Because I love churches that reach a lot of people, and and that was that church was reaching a lot of people. You come in, you start going deeper, discipleship, verse by verse exposition. How do you keep reaching people? Did you keep reaching people? Tell us some of the story. Yeah. Okay. So this is a long, long story, but I just tell you, let me give you my headspace where where I'm at. And you tell me where you guys would be if you're me. So I have given my life to discipleship at Brainerd, the church I was pastoring in Chattanooga, had very little discipleship intentionality. We took uh, about 12 people in the first year. And by the time I left, again, numbers aren't, let's say in this impression, but just to show you the kind of the progression, we went from 12 uh, to right under 1500 people in groups of three to five meeting all over the city. Okay. So we, we were, and this isn't life group, life groups was a whole different number. These are three to five men with men, uh, gender exclusive, like life that, transformation groups kind of thing where the disciples yeah, yeah. Asking each other studying questions. the Bible, holding yeah. each other, high accountability, high confidentiality, high intimacy for the purpose of replication. They were reproducing. So exponential growth. I mean, it's just, it's not magic. I tell people it's math. I mean, really, I mean, Jesus was mm-hmm. the first quote network marketer. Uh, I mean, he knew the power of investing a few. So I thought they were contacting me, which I think part of it was because they had a discipleship deficit. They were highly evangelistic. So when I went to the first or the final meeting, this is the final meeting before I'm officially the guy. I remember it was like a three and a half hour meeting. They were asking questions about theology and practice and ecclesiology. And one person said to me, hey, I know you're coming from a smaller church. Brainer was about three times smaller than Long Hollow at the time. And they said, hey, how does it feel to come into a church that last year baptized almost a thousand people in 2014, but in 2013, we baptized over a thousand people in a year. Now, back up. I I never heard of really many churches doing that. Okay. Yeah. Shockingly unusual. Shock. Yep. When you're hearing that, even listening, you're thinking 2000 people in two years. And here's what, here's what he said. He said, how do you feel about coming into a church uh, that is of that magnitude? And I, and I said, wow, first of all, praise God for the baptisms. Wow. I never heard of a church doing this, but here's the question I would have for you. What did you do with the people? Mm -hmm. Now I didn't know the numbers back then. And I've since, you know, looked at the chart and the numbers and and what we did, but I said, what did you do with the people? And by God's grace, thank God, they were honest. They looked around for a moment and they said, that's what we're talking to you about. Mm -hmm. And what I found out, and this is interesting, what I found out when I looked at the numbers after getting here, and this is no indictment of anybody in the past. This is just the, the, the product of a growing church, reaching people. You know, it's hard to spend both discipleship and evangelism plates. But I realized that in those two years where we baptized 2,000 people, Daniel, we were in, in a sense plateaued. Mm. Now, a couple factors. You got a pastor who's sick, pastor has cancer, pastor passes away. Okay, I get all the, those tangible things. But the reality is we were growing. And here's what I find. And I know you guys know this. We were putting people in the church as fast through the front door as they were going out the back door. It was like this escalator evangelism, I call it. You know, we were trying to reach you so that we can reach your friend and forget about you. And then we reach your friend so we can reach their friend and forget about you. And the Lord began to show me something that it's one thing to, to reach people. Praise God, we have to. But many people in, in America, many church pastors don't have an infrastructure a pathway, if you will, to move people through a process 
to create them into the image of Christ. In a sense, they don't know the kind of disciple. This is what we really focus on on Replicate. They don't know the kind of disciple they're trying to make. And so they're just throwing things and seeing what sticks against the wall in a sense. I can hear shades of Wesley and the Methodist movement uh, underneath your language there. So I'm curious, you know, the influence on you. But uh, going to what you're just saying there, uh, what are you seeing in terms of like the American church and how we're doing discipleship? Like, what are we doing well? And then what are some things that we need to to improve on? Yeah, uh, I'll tell you what I learned uh, at Long Hollow, which is, uh, you know, kind of a case study myself, is that I learned that when I was coming in, I mean, my first series out the gate was the great omission, right? I mean, six weeks, why we have omitted the great commission. And what I found was after that series, which I thought I explained everything. I mean, I was, like Ed said, I was doing exegetical, expositional messages. And what, what I felt like, or what I heard afterward was that my people were saying, you were saying the word discipleship, but what we were hearing was anti-evangelism. Do you guys run into that? Like people, oh, totally. it's like you, it's like they cannot have both held intention. And I tell a lot of people, I'm a big proponent of Jewish Hebraic studies. And Jesus obviously was not a white, uh, blue eyed, blonde haired uh, surfer dude from California. He was a dark skinned Millerson rabbi from the Middle East. And so he thought differently and he spoke differently. But one of the things that the Jewish culture has taught me is how to hold two paradoxical ideas that appear to be against each other in tension at the same time, right? And one of the things we, we don't do well in America is we don't hold discipleship and evangelism together in tension. And what I mean is, it's like rowing a boat. If you have one oar, the oar of evangelism, then you row in a circle. But if you only have the discipleship oar, which a lot of us have, then you row in a circle. You have to have two oars to row, row in the same direction. And so what I had to learn was just because I was speaking the language, just because I was preaching the sermons, just because I brought in the A-list team of disciple makers, I wasn't in a sense making disciples. And here's the big thing, the aha thing we found, is that we found that we were, we thought we were equipping the saints to do the ministry, but actually I was equipping a staff to do the ministry. And if you notice the big, the big difference in, in Ephesians chapter four, you know, he says, equip the saints to do the work of ministry, not equip the saints, comma, do the work of ministry, comma, perfect the saints, comma. And here's a big thing. And I know you guys would amen this. We realized that we were actually doing the ministry for our people and making disciples. And we weren't creating hero makers. We, we were the heroes of the discipleship ministry. We were the one forming the man. We were doing de-harmony, right? Like, yeah, I want to be in a discipleship group. Great. We'll, we'll sign you up. We'll give you a room. We'll give you space. And what we found is we weren't empowering our people to be the hero makers. We weren't showing them a compelling way of why they need to make disciples. So let me speak to the pastor for a moment. Here's the problem. The major problem I did at Long Hollow or had, I came in and led with strategy. I didn't lead with vision. Now, most pastors are like vision. I don't want to spend a lot of time on vision. I don't want to spend a lot of time on, on mission. I mean, values, really? Do we need them? I mean, that was me. But let me give you an example. It's like if your child has never experienced Disney World or never even heard of Disney World, the last thing I would do to get your child and you as a father excited about Disney World 
is to show you the kind of Toyota forerunner that you're going to drive down from Tennessee to get to Orlando. But you don't understand. I mean, this thing has air conditioning. I mean, look at the power seat. You're going to love these seats. And you even have a connection for your phone to get a map. And here's a map to get there. And man, well, look at those rims. The kids are going to say, what is this? That's what I did, Ed, for two years. I said, this is discipleship. You meet in a group. You meet with men, men with men, women with women. You, you're you going to have fun. I mean, it's going to be awesome. You're going to meet at the church. You'll meet at the coffee shop. And they're like, I don't care about a forerunner. If I want to get you to go to Disney World and drive the, the 10 hours from, from Nashville there, what I need to do is build in your heart what it's going to look like when you arrive. And I need to show you that imagine what it's like when your son looks up holding your hand when he sees Mickey for the first time in the twinkle in his eye or the, or the word from your daughter at night when you're tucking her in bed and she says, you're the best daddy in the world. <laughs> Listen, I don't know about you. You'll walk to Disney world if you do that. And I think that's the thing I would share as I'm seeing uh, the answer to your question, Daniel, what I'm seeing is a lot of pastors saying, this is how you make disciples. This is what you do in a discipleship group, me included. I don't see a lot of people saying, this is what will happen when you have a church on fire for Jesus. You're going to have better fathers who love their children. You're going to have better wives who love their husbands. You're going to have better coaches who, who look for divine appointments when they mentor their students and everything in between. Okay, I'm, I'm, I'm tracking with you. I'm buying the vision. I'm also probably one of the people, you know, you and I swim in some of the same theological streams. And um I, but I'm the guy who's like, hey, I'm deeply thankful for churches that I might have probably used term anymore, but like churches that were trying to reach seekers. Um, and I'm at the first time I'm going to quote a poem right here on the podcast for the first time. So uh, let me quote a poem from Sam Shoemaker. It's called I Stand by the Door. I don't think I put, quoted that before. Okay, here's what it says. This is just part of it, right? It says, go in, great saints, go all the way in. This is how I think of like the people in our often movement, Robbie. Go in, great saints, go all the way in. Go down into cavernous cellars and way up to spacious attics in a vast roomy house, this house where God is. Go into the deepest hidden casements of withdrawal, of silence, of sainthood. Some must inhabit those inner rooms and know the depths and heights of God and call outside to the rest of us how wonderful it is. Sometimes I take a deeper look in, sometimes venture in a little farther. But my place seems closer to the, the opening, so I stand by the door. And his theme is, I stand by the door, so I help people who, you know, it says men outside the door as starving beggars die on cold nights in cruel cities in the dead of winter. It says, I stand by the door so people can find their way. And a lot of people in our theological room don't like those kind of churches that are asking, how do we really focus on reaching unchurched people or seekers, whatever language we're using today? Um, but for me, what I found is having walked a journey, you know, I've had the privilege of preaching at your church uh, under under your leadership, un, under under your pre predecessor's leadership. Um, most churches that sort of get beyond the seeker thing, they they actually do stop reaching a lot of people. They go deeper, and in the process, they stop growing wider. And so, so I think we can. I can agree with everything you said. That you know you're your rather fancy way of saying it in Hebrew understanding. But at the end of the day, this is a real thing, that churches have a real hard time being evangelistically passionate and discipleship focused. So let's acknowledge that's true and say, what? How do we, how do we have the kind of growing discipleship that 
doesn't at the same time cause us to lose our evangelistic passion, particularly as a lot of people, you know, here we are, you know, kind of the seeker movement's, you know, gone in so many ways. So how do we not lose the evangelistic passion that we had in that movement? Tell us more, because I think it's also worth noting, too, you guys had an explosion of evangelistic activity recently as well. So tell us how to avoid this dichotomy, not just that it shouldn't be, but how do we avoid it? And then tell us a little more of the story at Long Hollow. Yeah, so, I, I mean, people always get, give me a bad rap and say he's a discipleship guy, meaning yep. he, he's not focused on reaching people. Now, the, the funny caveat is I actually wrote my dissertation on how to give an evangelistic invitation. I don't know if yeah. you know that, Ed. So that's kind of I the did, funny I did know that part. I didn't know David yeah. Platt part of your story, but I didn't know the dissertation. I didn't know the Okay, so yeah, so the ha-ha is, th this is a guy who's always been passionate about yeah. reaching people. It's just that I've given my life to discipleship because I see that's where the need is. Uh, but as you saying, as you said earlier, now the evangelism plate is, is falling. And so we kind of have to keep the pendulum uh, central. So here's what I would say. One of the things I, people have asked me is, why do you think God would send, quote, a revival to Long Hollow in 2021, which is what we experience? And people say, how do you know it was a genuine move of God? The year before in 2020, we baptized 250 people. The year before that, we or actually in COVID, we baptized 129. The year before that, we baptized 250. And I'm telling you that to tell you, we are not a baptism-driven, get them in the tank, just, you know, if they're breathing, they get baptized. So we were very meticulous. We had a long baptism class, which we've since kind of moved away from. And we had a process for baptism. From, from the end of December 2020, to the first first 15 weeks of 2021, we saw over 1,000 people baptized. Okay, now let me just say that. 15 weeks, 1,000 people baptized. And in the year of 2021, we saw over or right around 1,600 people baptized. At Now, this is Middle Tennessee. This is Bible Belt America. Uh, you know, some people say, I don't even know there were that many people to, to be baptized, right? In Middleton State. <laughs> but, but okay, so I was on a podcast with a guy we know, a mutual friend of ours, Kevin Ezell. And yep. Kevin Ezell said, I think it's comical. I have to stop you that the discipleship guy is the one that God pours out his spirit of revival to. Like, like I think mm -hmm. that's comical. And he asked me, he said, why do you think that is? And I hadn't thought about it, but I will say this. And obviously, God's sovereign, he does what he wants. I'd love to say I was praying for 20 years for revival. I wasn't. I was simply praying to reach people. I was simply praying for God to change hearts. But I will say this. Could it be, Ed, that for five and a half years, behind the scenes, in a dual manner, we were still trying to reach people, but behind the scenes, I was setting up a paradigm of disciple making to prepare for the influx of potential people that could possibly come. I used to preach a sermon on Acts chapter one and I would, or Acts chapter two, and I'd say, what if this Sunday God pours out his spirit like Acts two and you have 3,000 people saved in your service? Do you have a process, think about this, to baptize them? Because the disciples, it says they baptized 3,000 people that day. And I would jokingly say, not only do you not have a process, but we don't have a process for that. Well, God almost called our bluff. In a sense, he said, let me send you 1,600 and see what happens. Now, we haven't put all of them in a discipleship pathway. It really just jammed the system, if you can imagine. But we try to. 
Mm-hmm. And I think, and I'm mean, not trying to be God, but I think God in his sovereignty said, hey, we know all of them won't be put into a discipleship process, but we know at Long Hollow, they're going to do their best to try. Mm-hmm. And I would say to you, pastor, if you're listening, leader, do you have a process to move people through lostness to new believer, born again experience, and then move them through faithful following Jesus? And here's the key. And then move them to a place where they replicate their life. Here's a, here's the thing I tell people until a disciple makes a disciple, they haven't made disciples. We're not making converts here. We're not making decisions here. We're not making Christians. We're making disciples. And I think at a, I, I think it's, uh, it goes back to what you celebrate gets replicated. If you're only celebrating evangelism, which we try to celebrate, then you're only going to produce evangelists. If you only celebrate making disciples, you're only going to produce disciple. You want to celebrate both. So what you celebrate, your people in turn will try to replicate, I think. I like that you're using words like system and process. I think a lot of times when people hear the term discipleship, they're thinking of like one-on-one coffees or, or something like that. And and it could be that. But um can you give us an idea, you know, at Long Hollow, like what's what's the system and process? I know that it's not a linear process for everybody, but in terms of your leadership um, structure and the way that discipleship is happening through system and process, uh, give our listeners an idea of what that looks like. Yeah, I will give Ed credit. It's hard for me to do that, but I will give Ed credit on this. Ed was kind enough to read the early manuscript of a book I wrote, uh, Rediscovering Discipleship. And he pushed back on a concept that I was still working through of, can you disciple uh, an unbeliever? Remember this, Ed? We had this long discussion. I actually don't remember this at all. This is fascinating. Okay, you don't remember this at all? Well, you helped me because because I was, I was you know, when you're young and you think you know everything in the ministry and you're right, right? Um, and I was a little dogmatic and narrow-minded in the scope of discipleship, meaning I was, you know, discipleship only happens in a group of three to five men oh, with I men gotcha. exclusive. You yep. remember this? Yeah, I do. And what we realize now, Daniel, to answer your question, we now have four quadrants where we basically have, if, if you're drawing an X and a Y axis, basically on one side, we have evangelism and discipleship. On the other axis, we have structured and open meaning you're going to follow a structured pattern or you're going to be open to let the person decide what they're going to do. And here's what we realize, and y'all know this, church leaders have to have options because the context is different, right? California is different than, than Nashville. Chicago is different than Florida. So you have to have a context. So we have two, we have four sets of groups that people can lead. We have D groups, which are closed groups, men with women, Men with men, women with women, they meet for 12 to 18 months. They study the scripture. They'll sometimes read books together, high accountability, and for the purpose of replication. But we also have discipleship groups that are open. So you may say, my group needs men's study. My group needs a women's a parenting, and whatever. My, my group is wanting to learn about how to share their faith. But then we have e-groups, Ed. This is the help you gave me. So we have groups that are per, that just for evangelism. And some may be structured where they follow a system, you know, about apologetics or study, but some may be open. Like we have a guy in our church who meets around a fire with his neighbors who would never come to church and they smoke cigars and they hang out and they talk about just whatever's happening in life. That would be an e-group. And so I would say you have to have some kind of plan and process to make disciples. Jesus never left discipleship to chance. 
I had a pastor, my uh, friend of mine in Chattanooga years ago, and he said, man, you're so structured and, and focused and committed on making disciples and you have a process. We're more holistic at my church. He said, it happens. We just don't know it's happening, but it's happening. And I pushed back and I said, brother, with all due respect, that was not Jesus. Jesus was militant about what he did and how he did it and the way he said it and who he did it with. Jesus had a group of 12 and out of 12, he had a group of three and he knew he could change the world with a few. When you're talking about the disciple-making path and process, I want to come back to that because, you know, our audience is pastors and church leaders, um, and sometimes there's so much going on, they feel a little overwhelmed by, you know, I got to I gotta preach, I got to plan this service, I got, you know, most of the churches are going to be smaller than your church, and they're doing, you know, pastors are doing 15 things. Um, so what advice would you give? Someone comes to you, pastor in a church of 120 people on a weekend, and says, so how would I begin to implement disciple-making strategies? That's some of what you gave there, but your church is also larger, so I probably can't have four options for different people. So how do I see, with my church of 120 people, see a disciple-making culture? Yeah, great question. My first church, 65 people, South Louisiana, Morgan City. I was a Christian ed for four years. They took a chance on a former drug addict, alcoholic, $200 a day, heroin and cocaine addiction. Church was about to close the doors. And I guess they said, what else could we lose? You know what I mean? Let's it's just fair. give this guy a try. And it was my testimony in a small town and my passion for discipleship that by God's grace, the church grew to almost 300 in three years. And I'll tell you how I did it. I knew nothing about ecclesiology. I knew nothing about the secret friendly. I knew nothing. I didn't even know I really how to preach. But I knew two things I told him. Number one is I'm going to preach the word as faithfully as I can. But number two, I'm going to invest in a group of men. And my wife is going to invest in a group of, men, of women. Now, here's what we did. If you're listening, I would find four to six key catalyst changing, shaping men in your church that if Jesus gets a hold of their heart, there will be a ripple effect in the congregation. Now, some of these could be against you, cantankerous men. I remember one guy who was my finance. He was the finance department. And you know these churches. I mean, the small churches. <laughs> in order to do anything, Joey had to sign the check. He was the department. And for me to go to him as a 27-year-old, 28-year-old and say, hey, would you be interested in me discipling you? He would have said, you? No way. But I went to him and said, hey, Joey, would you be interested in being a better dad or a husband or a father just talking over lunch? everybody's interested in that. So I put together a group of five men and I met with them for 12 months. This is a long journey here. And over the time we studied the Bible, we talked about life, we held each other accountable. And what happened was this, this is how I created a movement in a small context. Those men became the greatest billboard of apologetics for discipleship working in the church. Because what their wives started doing is saying, Hey, pastor, I don't know what you're doing with my husband but you need to keep doing it. And then people kept asking questions. I tell people they lived a life that asked questions. People kept saying, what's going on with you? Why are you different? Or, and then it became this movement where people said, man, to not be in discipleship relationships was actually to be out of fellowship in a sense with the church. So I would just say, start small. Here's a key thing. And I'll say this and we'll move on. And you could find all of this at replicate.org, our, our website. People ask me, how do you know I'm making disciples? How do I know I'm really seeing discipleship happen? So I came up with a scorecard. I always talk about changing the scorecard. You know, the scorecard today is the ABCs of church, you know, attendance buildings or cash, or as Bill Hall says, budgets, bucks, and butts. I don't know if we can say butts that. And but butts and seats. 
Yeah, Bud's is it. Yeah. So, but here, here's the new scorecard we that I created years ago, and we promote with Replicate. We call it the marks of a disciple. The marks of a disciple. We want to create a disciple that lives missionally, M, missionally, on mission for God, going to the same place, same time, seeing the same people. The A is accountable. We want to create a life of accountability where you're accountable. You know what accountability is? Holding me responsible for what I said I'm going to do. That's all it is. The R is reproducible, trying to create a reproducible life. The mentee creates a becomes a mentor. The C, it's a it's not K. I could go koinonia with Greek, but spelling, too much. Spelling so is hard, man. Spelling is hard. <laughs> yeah, it's hard. It's really you said you're so focused on discipleship, not spelling. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. So I would see communal. The groups are communal. They live in community. They're they're confidential. They're intimate. And then the final one is scriptural, marks of a disciple. And we're teaching people to read the Bible daily, journal consistently, and memorize God's word weekly. And that's a good framework, a good rubric, if you will, to help you think through how am I creating a disciple who's making disciples? You know, you know, Robbie, I'm, inevitably, there's somebody listening to the podcast and they're thinking, you know, I've, I've been pastoring this church for 10, 15 years, and I don't know if I've ever been discipled. Yeah. So yeah. talk about that in your own life. How do you stay fresh? How do you stay discipled? You, you mentioned, you know, the presence of somebody like David Platt in your life early on, but even as a pastor now, like who's speaking into your life and what does that look like for you? Yeah. So I would say every person has to have three relationships in their life, wherever you are, hold you are. You need a Paul, someone who's investing in you, holding you accountable. And it doesn't have to be someone much older. Remember, David Platt was not much older. David Platt was actually younger, but he was more mature in a sense. You have to have a Barnabas. Every pastor needs someone who's sharpening them and encouraging sounding board. And then you also need a Timothy. And I tell people, people say, Ed, you said earlier, I don't have the time to make disciples. I'm pastoring a church. Listen, you can't afford not to invest in someone. Discipling a group of guys. I have two groups that meet every week. I got a group that meets uh, on Wednesday nights and a group that meets on Monday morning. And I, I benefit more from that group than I ever bring to the group because they're holding me accountable. They're asking me if I'm in the word, if I'm treating my wife with respect and love. And so I would say, uh, you need those three kinds of relationships. And if you've never been discipled, I would pray and just approach somebody you look up to and say, hey, would you be interested in meeting once a week, once, once a month? Uh, I'll tell you a guy I meet with now, Ed, just to tell you, you know, Mike Glenn. Mike Glenn yeah. is a pastor yeah. of a church in Brentwood, Tennessee. And okay. Mike is further along than me. And I love this brother. I didn't know him very well. Just said, hey, would we be interested in meeting and you invest in me? And his first line, I love this. His first question was this. He said, I'll do it if you give me the cell phone number of Candy, your wife. It's like, what well, kind of group are we talk, what kind yeah. of group are we talk about here? You know, he said, here's why. And this is a great idea. He said, because Robbie, by the time the church or even me, by the time I see that you're off in ministry, you're about 20% off. By the time your wife sees you're off in ministry, it's one to 2%. Oh, that's good. And so I'm going to need to check in with her. And I thought, man, this, this is the candy's like, my wife's like, this is the guy you need to meet with. Yeah. So yeah. Even today, <laughs> She's like, give I'm him my still, cell number. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Give my cell and my mom. Yeah. Really. So wow. We're all in. So. Fascinating, yeah, but important, important. So super conversation. Uh, today and and we've gone a little bit long, but I think there's just such good stuff here. So you saw this um, outpouring, you know, very very powerful moment. Um, you saw um, many people, you know, become followers, new followers of Christ, and more. It's also waned. You're not baptizing 
hundreds of people a month. I mean, you were like going, it was, I, I you saw videos or news stories done about it, all kind of stuff. Um, what does that mean? I mean, it's interesting. The, the, I, I sat down with Robert Coleman, um, who was, of course, you know, that name from discipleship, but he was part of several just powerful movements. And I asked him, I was in his living room in, in Asbury, Kentucky. And I said, uh, what happens when it goes away? And he just, he wept and he, he said, I don't know. And I don't know why. And I don't know what was different. It's talked about the sovereignty of God. Good Wesleyan started talking about the sovereignty of God. So where do you go from here? I mean, you're not experiencing that powerful revival you did, but you're still moving forward. How are you moving forward? And tell us a little bit about the implications of that. Yeah, man, this is a good question. I've been thinking about this a lot. Um, one of the things that came to mind, and I just, if you ever experienced a move of God, which you've experienced, and we've you know gotten close to touch the hem of the garment at times in ministry. One of the things for me personally is it has changed the course of my ministry forever. I mean, when you see a genuine outpouring of the spirit of God, you, you're not the same. You just long for that again. But I do know this, and I got a lot of good counsel from men who had experienced these kinds of revivals before. And here's a line that I've thought about. Don't ever be tempted to work up what only God can send down. Hmm. And you see this a lot with guys. They try to keep it going. And Michael Catt, who was a good friend and, and really a uh, really, uh, good mentor to me through this, Michael Catt told me this. He said, as a pastor of a revival, and his friend was Ron Dunn. You remember Ron Dunn, one of I my do. favorite yeah, yeah, yeah. preachers. If you don't, if you've never heard of Ron Dunn, by the way, y'all need to go listen to Ron Dunn on <laughs> uh, on on podcast. But anyway, I listen to him all the time. But Ron Ron Dunn experienced a revival for about seven years, and one of the things he said was, as a pastor, you are a shepherd of the fire. This is your job. You are a tender of the fire. I said, what do you mean? He said, well, you got to know as the pastor and you're sitting with the Lord to discern when you're, when you're kind of caring for a fire, sometimes you need to throw some more logs on because it goes low, but then sometimes you just need to stoke the fire. So you just need to move some things around, just kind of let it be. But then there's other times when you need to let the fire go out. And I'll just tell you personally, Ed, I mean, personally for me, it's a long story, but the revival came off the heels of me sitting with the Lord for 10 months in silence and solitude that started with 15, 20 minutes. And I'm not a big silence and solitude guy. I knew nothing about it. Honestly, honestly, I knew nothing about it. a lot of books aren't written on it. Uh, nobody's talking about the spiritual discipline of silence and solitude, but what struck me was two things. Uh, one thing was God's first language was silence, right? I mean, out of everything, he spoke from silence. And then secondly, he speaks through the whisper of the small voice. And I felt like God was speaking, but I couldn't hear. I had so many distractions and voices in my head. The volume was so high. So I sat for 10 minutes, started with 20 minutes, Daniel, went to about an hour, went to two hours every single night for 10 months. And what started the revival was the words I heard in my head, spontaneous baptism. Now, Ed, you know, in the circles I run with, that's frowned upon. He's yeah, manipulative. And I was like, I was like, surely so that's favor that so much. Yeah, surely this is not the Lord. But again, I sat with it and I felt like that had to be the Lord. I wouldn't have come up with that. I've only been a believer at the time for a short time. I'm like, I wouldn't have come up with that. And thankfully, by God's grace, I offered it the first day. We baptized a hundred people, and that started this move of God. And here's what here's what the thing I've learned though. As the leader or the pastor of a church experiencing revival. I really burn myself out. And here's what happens. I felt like because I was managing the fire, if you stand too close to a fire too long, you get burned. Hmm. 
And I put, I think, a lot of pressure on myself and a lot of uh, just weight of trying to carry the revival. And the revival ended. Here's how it ended. It ended basically July 9th when my closest friend in the, in, in the ministry and my closest friend in life and my lead team friend and our mutual friend, Chris Swain, yep. died at 47 years old, dropped out of a heart attack at the mailbox unexpectedly. Yep. Perfect yep. health. And that was the period of revival. I want to eventually write a book uh, called the, 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 the cost of revival and the price to maintain it because there's a cost and there's a price, as you know. You've been listening to the voice of Robbie Gallaty. Uh, be sure to check out his books, Growing Up and Rediscovering Discipleship. Uh, and also don't forget to check out uh, the website, replicate.org to learn more about Replicate Ministries. Thanks again for listening to the Sets of Church Leaders podcast. You can find more interviews like this one and other great content from ministry leaders at churchleaders.com slash podcast. And again, if you found our conversation today helpful, we'd love, uh, love for you to take a few moments, leave us a review that'll help other ministry leaders find us and benefit from our content. We'll see you in the next episode. You've been listening to the Stetzer Church Leaders podcast. For more great interviews, as well as articles, videos, and free resources, visit our website at churchleaders.com. Thanks for listening.